This is an ABC podcast. Chloe Hooper is the author of many books, all of which seem to have won prizes of one kind or another. There's her non-fiction work, which includes The Tall Man, Death and Life on Palm Island, and more recently, The Arsonist. She's written two novels, and now she's written a memoir of a period from only a few years ago, after an incident which she said cracked her family wide open. This was after her husband, Don Watson, became ill with a very rare form of leukaemia. Don Watson, who's an Australian historian and author and a former speechwriter for Prime Minister Paul Keating, he's okay. He survived the ordeal. But for a long while, when the prognosis was truly terrible, Chloe wondered what on earth she was going to say to their two young sons, who were seven and four at the time. What form of words would do the trick? The words that would tell the truth about what was going on and yet not leave these boys feeling like the whole world had fallen out from under their feet. Chloe's book is about how she went looking for the elusive bedtime story she could tell her boys. A story with a magical combination of words that could somehow lead them from the terrors of that moment to a place of safety. Chloe's memoir is called Bedtime story. And I spoke with Chloe on the weekend in front of a live audience at this year's Canberra Writers Festival. You and Don are both writers. You have separate studies. Can you hear each other typing? Yes, we can. I, I can hear him working. And that, that in lately has been a lovely, a lovely sound. When I write books... I'm finding it harder and harder to find family members who will sit still and listen while I read my own writing to them because, you know, it's me and, and they're sick of hearing my voice. Do you and Don read your work aloud to each other as you're working on stuff? No. It's a sort of secret until often the very last moment and it's interesting to find out what your partner's been thinking about for the last couple of years. Really? You have no idea? You're not, you're not discussing... Like, he's got Chloe Hooper sitting across from him and you've got Don Watson sitting across from you. Aren't you talking through these themes that are obsessing you at, at dinner? I think we're talking about it in a, in a circular way, but once your partner's book is in front of you, the actual mechanics or sentence by sentence or, oh, I never knew you thought that, or actually, wow, you, you really write well. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, this this goes beyond our, our usual conversations of whether or not you fed the dog or or you know who's going to do pick up. I mean, it, it is quite enchanting actually. And, and uh, what do you require from each other that you just listen, or do you want feedback as well? Well, he, he may not want feedback, but that is what he gets. <laughs> <laughs> you have these two lovely young boys. What is the evening ritual like once you've been through? arsenic hour, as we used to call it in my house, once you've, you know, fed them, showered them, put them in their jammies and tucked them into bed. What happens after that? Okay, so uh, in, the, in the early days, it really did feel as though we were lion tamers and, and the book was kind of the chair that was being held up to, um, you know, get s- some sort of level of compliance because there did seem to be suddenly uh, a riot would break out. It, it did feel as though, you know, all of adult all the, the way that they were so fed up with adult rules by the end of the day came out in this 
kind of, you know, carnival. And the the books were one way to actually get them into bed. So we would read stories to them. And then the books would, would go back in, in sort of lopsided ways into the shelves and the light would go out and their dad would sit on a couch that, that's between their beds and tell them, uh, I guess, a bespoke story. What do you mean by bespoke story? Well, a story created just for them to try to crack the dark open. And are they the protagonists in those stories? Occasionally they are. And one of the favourites is that they're on a, a, a boat and they find out that the, the captain is an incompetent. I mean, obviously in children's stories, the adults are soon proved to know nothing about what is going on in the world. And, and, the, and the kids have to save some divers on a ship from a shark attack by grinding up some sleeping tablets they just happen to find and, and throwing it into the water. And that... That puts the shark to sleep? The shark goes to sleep, and, and hopefully so, so do they. Yeah. So the boys are often the heroes in these stories that Don, Don tells? I guess stories for children are a way of getting them to think about themselves as, as heroes, as being full of potential and braver than they might have first imagined or, or cannier or kinder. But there are also your, your typical stories about spiders and, and magic cats and dogs. And, and the kids always preferred it when he would put them to bed because they would get this sort of, this sort of um, a bonus track. Some of my strongest memories from my early childhood are from the books I read. And one book in particular I think of for myself is the moment when I read Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. And I think that that's one of those books, when you read them, read a book like that as a child, it changes you forever. It just changes the way you see the whole world. And even now when I think of it, even now when I talk about it, I'm feeling this kind of tingle, this lovely feeling. Do you have books like that for you that you remember from your childhood that shifted the way you see the world ever so slightly? I wanted there to be a sort of uh, a classic like Alice in Wonderland, but I, I feel like mine, uh, when, you, when you said that, I thought... Oh, yes, Nancy Drew, um, Trixie Belden, <laughs> Sweet Valley High. Uh, but, but more seriously, I do think that these stories read, I, I read those as a teenager. The, the books that you read as a child or that were read to you, they are wired into us in a particular way. And particularly the picture books that I was read as a kid, the illustrations seem to sort of hit the bloodstream almost like a like a narcotic and they they take you back to they take me back to the place where I first read them and and it's a place of comfort with my grandparents on their couch I can remember the autumnal print of the of the upholstery and it's a moment before anybody I love died these books are, are very precious Don grew up in country Victoria what do you know about his bedtime rituals, what that meant for him to go to bed and to read or hear stories? He grew up in a family that was very rich in stories, but there weren't very many books in the house. And maybe he, you know, is the director of this elaborate bedtime ritual because he was just put into bed and the door was shut and, um, you know, he could hear the wind whistling through the trees and, and rattling the window and the house wasn't very firm on its blocks, he says. 
And um, so it was the night full of terrors. The night was full of terrors for him. And the night's full of terrors, even if you've had an elaborate story strewn um, ease into bed, I think, too. I think the dark for kids is always a moment where the unknown, the unknown creeps in and maybe all of the things in the world that they don't understand kind of rears up at them. Early in your relationship with Don, you write that you would often go bushwalking together. Did he change the way you saw the bush? He is very comfortable in nature and the bush, having grown up in the country, and that was a a pleasure when we started courting, I suppose, um, to to see the world more through his eyes, and that's a lovely lovely story, isn't it, being in nature and, and being able to feel part of that. So when Don became ill... How was the seriousness of that diagnosis made apparent to you? Was it all at once or did it sort of just get worse and did the news sort of just get worse and worse over a period of weeks and months? I feel very aware that everyone here has probably had some sort of experience where their their blood runs cold when they find out a loved one is, is seriously ill. At first, when Don was diagnosed, it appeared to be a a standard blood cancer that could be easily treated and it would be manageable. And then slowly it became clear that this was a cancer that actually the haematologist hadn't seen before. And we were referred to an oncological haematologist who had, had seen this this cancer in in America, uh, and it may be that more people have it, but that their cancers aren't often genetically tested the way that that Don's was. Initially, it appeared that he wouldn't be able to have chemotherapy because it can actually exacerbate the cancer. So it, it's it's a it's a blood cancer that can turn feral, which is not a nice way to die, and it was really scary. You make it sound like it's a kind of a time bomb in the blood. I think that's, that is what it's like. This mutation of the cancer will just sit there in the background, but there'll be some point, you were told, where it would kick into gear, it would catalyse yes, something. Yes, and then, very, then, then you don't have a, lo- a long time. So then comes the thought, when you've got young kids, how are we going to tell these, these boys? And the awful dilemma of that. How did that lead you to children's books and, and the idea of the bedtime story, Chloe? Well, I think that we we weren't very good at this initially. We had a sense that you know we we we, sh- we shouldn't tell them this will this will completely um, be the end of any any happiness, and we had a feeling of of wanting to protect them from this sort of reality. And so you know, particularly I was you know moving through their lives, trying to be ridiculously cheerful. But at a moment I realised that you start, do start to think about inheritance and one thing that we were rich in was stories. And it occurred to me that perhaps the right story would offer a path through the forest 
I think the right story you can take your 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 straw you know even kind of poop flecked straw and and weave it into gold and I think that there's a sort of engine of once upon a time that can re restory sometimes even terrible situations for for kids and so I went searching I thought I would find the perfect story that would give us a path and give us some sort of glint of, of something golden. Yeah, there's two very different kinds of children's stories in, <laughs> in what you just said. The path out of the forest is Hansel and Gretel, where there's a witch who's a, uh, a psycho killer and a cannibal. Well, that's the cancer, isn't it? And then there's the spinning straw into gold, which is Rumpelstiltskin. That was going to be you, the person who was going to turn that straw into gold. I hoped. I hoped that, that, I mean, I think that a lot of these fairy stories actually work to, I mean, they, they have darkness in them, but the darkness kind of almost highlights the, the kind of gleam of the miraculous. And these stories were created to console children and to entertain them and to instruct them. And I, I felt, yes, I'm going to find the, exactly the right one and, and this will help. I mean, I, I guess there's a sort of, you're, you're, you're desperate. You're looking for some way to control what's, what can't be controlled. Sometimes I wonder whether bedtime stories, the good ones, the ones that really scare ch children, because they should scare children, I think. I mean, the best ones do. Well, not They're too the, much, because you do actually yeah. want them to go to, go to sleep. Go to freaking sleep. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do, but they should have a little frisson of something in them that startles them and makes them sort of awake, is to, is to subtly inform them that bad things happen in the world, but in a way where they, they're hearing your voice, they're feeling held by you, and they're hearing about it in a kind of a safe way. What, what do you think of that? I think that's right. I think the storyteller is, is the companion on the adventure. I think these stories are sort of decision-making simulations and that is why for millennia an adult and a child has sat or lay in the dark and we embed these stories with our most kind of precious knowledge and uh, some of that knowledge is things are going to go bad but you'll be all right. I remember when my kids were little, I remember taking them to see... Oh, I think it was a 90s or early 2000s version of Dickens' Oliver Twist. It was made into a movie by Roman Polanski. And the version where, where it opens with Oliver following in the funeral procession? Yes, yes, that's it's the one. spooky as. Yeah, spooky as. It's really quite powerful. And I remember afterwards the shock, because my kids had had pretty much just Teletubbies and Thomas the Tank Engine <laughs> up until that point, the shock on my little girl's face when she realised that some adults could be cruel to children. That thought that that can happen in the world was uh, it found profound shock to her. Do you think that's why we need these stories, or is that bad to show them that at too young a age? Well, I can't claim to be an expert, but I, I think that often a moral of, of a story is don't stray off the path, don't trust the person who appears friendly, but then there's also, you know, you can find a, a friend in an unlikely place. You talk about the psychologist, the child psychologist Piaget, who wrote about the rituals that children come up with to feel safe at night. Tell me a bit about some of those rituals the kids go through in order to make themselves feel safe when the dark all around them seems to be alive. 
Piaget writes uh, really beautifully about children pulling up the bedclothes, you know, just at a particular angle or having rituals of putting the blinds down and a, and a boy thinking if he put the blinds down quickly, no robbers could come into the house or they might lie a certain way. And I, I recognised that feeling of thinking that there was some way to control the dark and I guess that this is actually about a children, the, the first intimations that they feel that the world is out of their control. I think the word enchantment's an important word when we're talking about this sort of thing. Enchantment, you know, the, the etymology comes from cant or singing. There's, there's singing, there's music in it, isn't there? Yes, the well, I, and, then, and I guess storytelling is a, it's a, a form of song. Yes. And children's stories in particular, the lines are refined like, like poetry, uh, they're distilled a little bit like the lyrics of a song, you know, down to their essence. I've been rereading The Thousand and One Nights, that classic compendium of medieval stories that came from all over Persia and India and then arrived in the Arabic world and sort of formed into a collection of stories that we recognise today around about the 13th, 14th century. And the basis of that is Scheherazade is going to postpone her death at the hands of her husband, who's a, a cruel and psychopathic king by beguiling him every night, by enchanting him every night with story after story after story. That's a kind of a postponement of death. Did that thought enter your mind when you were thinking of the story you needed for your boys? Well, I certainly thought of Don as, as, as Scheherazade, and, and, but I calculated that A Thousand and One Nights, or, or as I think Borges, didn't he describe it as forever and a day? He said only... a thousand is like a number that sort of means an infinity. Yes. And that's why a thousand and one is such a beautiful number. It's one plus infinity. But it's only actually um, 2.74 years. <laughs> and uh, that, that didn't feel like it was going to be long enough for me. Not that you get a choice. You looked at some of the older fairy stories, the older, better versions of them, before they were prettified by Disney, the older ones, where Cinderella's older sisters lop off parts of their feet to fit them into the slipper. Well, uh, in a very early version... Cinderella is working in a kitchen because actually it's her father has recently been widowed and, and decides he's going to marry her and that's, that's why she's, she's run away from home penniless. So, yes, these stories are full of kind of feral and horrible destinies. Yeah, there's an Icelandic ghost story that's an inversion of Cinderella because Iceland was often so poor infants would have to be exposed, they'd have to be left out into the cold to die if they couldn't be fed. And there's a special kind of Icelandic ghost called an utbudr, which is the ghost of an infant that's been exposed. And there's a story in Iceland about a woman who has to do this, she's a milkmaid, but there's a ball on that night in, in the nearby farm. And while it's she's, so dark. I know, it's, it's getting dark, isn't it? And she, as she's milking the cow, she hears the voice of the utbudr, her the ghost of her infant, and they stutter, these ghosts. They say, mother of mine in the fold, fold, do not be so sad, sad. You can wear my rags, rags, and dance and dance and dance. And she loses her mind. Like she's being offered the dress for the ball by the dead child. Yeah, you see, there's kind of beguiling. Like I can feel the stillness in the room as I tell that story. And that the slipper was apparently it was, it was first made of, of fur uh, in, in early versions and, and then of silk and, and finally glass. 
Right. What's the subtext behind some of those old stories, as far as you can see, in terms of like disease and death that was rampant in the Middle Ages? Are these plague stories? Well, I think that they're actually they're far older than that. I mean, I think that folklorists who trace these stories back find that there are versions all over the world, and some stories, like I think Rumpelstiltskin, can be dated back two and a half thousand years. But of course, you know, there have been plagues before. So death is sown into these stories and people didn't expect to live very long. So we didn't have to pretend that little pigs uh, are going to make it through the end and the wolf is just going to go away. The other thing that the plague caused, other than the kind of awful harrowing deaths of loved ones in medieval Europe and Christians and Muslims, whoever was going through these, these terrible ordeals, felt a kind of moral chaos. Like, why are babies dying and these terrible, wicked, grown gangsters, thugs in the street are still alive? There's a feeling that God had turned the sunshine of his face away from them for, for some awful reason. When you were going through this thing, I know, I know you're not believers, either you or Don, but did you feel there's a certain kind of, I don't know, something turning its face away from you? A loss of grace, perhaps? It's interesting asking this question after the pandemic because Don went into remission and now we've all lived through the last two and a half years where existential questions are much more to the fore after our modern plague. And when you talk about a lack of grace and and moral chaos, it does make me think of war drums suddenly starting in different parts of the world, the, the opportunism that, that comes. This is all that, taking that place at a time when liberal democracy is in trouble, the environment's in crisis. Absolutely. And I, when I first went to the bookshelf looking for something to read to the kids, I realised that their stories were peopled, or sorry, excuse me, they were animaled with um, <laughs> pigs and rabbits and, and mice. And I was reading to the kids about about rabbits and, and a rabbit being tucked up in bed when, of course, you know, we're living on a continent where rabbits have absolutely screwed the topsoil and it'll take centuries for land to actually recover. So it did make me think very much about the use of anthropomorphising animals, how we use them to sort of tell stories which will make children feel better and actually we we imagine that it's going to build a a relationship between the child and nature when actually it probably completely severs it because the rabbit isn't going to be down a burrow with a a patchwork quilt and a cup of chamomile tea. One thing I didn't know until I read your book is that the authors of so many of the most loved books of children's literature and and historic fantasy fiction, all of their lives were riven with tragedy as children. It just goes on and on. Eric Carle, the creator of The Very Hungry Caterpillar, tell me a bit about what you found out about his early life as a child. Well, I I started to look at the storytellers more than the stories. And Eric Carle had been raised in the United States. And then when he was I think about seven, his his mother, who was homesick, uh, relocated the family back to Stuttgart. And this was in the late 30s, disastrous timing. And very soon the homeland was this um, camouflaged place when he talked about the luminescent colour in the hungry caterpillar being an antidote to the, the drab palette of his childhood. 
but his his father, who was the person who had interested him in in storytelling and stories, and in particular in the small creatures of of nature, he was drafted into the war and soon became a Russian prisoner of war for the remainder of Kale's childhood. And he and Kale was also sent to the front to dig trenches and within days witnessed prisoners of war being shot. So you look at the very hungry caterpillar and all that kind of joyfulness. That's yes, yes. And actually he, he also wrote about this sort of luscious food being the fantasy of, of a child who, who remembered American abundance and was living half-starved throughout the war. And there's J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. You discovered that when he was six years old, his gifted older brother died in an ice skating accident. The grief-stricken mother took to her bed for months on end, lying in her bed conversing with her dead son. Does this change the way you can see Peter Pan? It was really interesting learning how many of these iconic children's authors grew up with tragedy and the, the Grimm brothers lost their father as children. And, and then I, I realised so did Hans Christian Andersen and Francis Hodgson Burnett and Ellen Montgomery of Anne of Green Gables fame, Tolkien, uh, C.S. Lewis, Dahl, Kenneth Graham, Wind in the Willows. It made me realise actually perhaps a element of enchantment is this drop of grief. Maybe for those authors having become orphans at a young age, to write a children's story isn't so much a form of enchantment but to re-enchant themselves with the world. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis planted in Narnia a tree that would bear silver apples that could heal a, a dying parent and his mother had, had died of cancer when I think he was about eight or nine. So... Certainly there's a sense in these stories of revisiting a, a lost Eden and, and, and Tolkien too wrote of wanting to recapture the happiness of his childhood before he was orphaned. It's a, a chance of re-meeting the dark and trying to control it. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. The upbringing you had and the upbringing Don had, how was death introduced into your lives when you were little? Did you go to funerals? Did you see the body of dead grandparents, that kind of thing? Or was that hidden from you? I don't know that my parents put a you know the kind of thought into it that now i've i've done they weren't confronted with this situation i do remember as a as a teenager i i wasn't allowed to go i was probably about 13 i wasn't allowed to go to my grandmother who i adored her, her funeral because the feeling was it might upset me so um there was a sort of a, a sense i mean this kind of protectionist trend which i sort of linked to actually peter pan leaping through the nursery window and you know at, at around the same time there was this sort of medical miracle in 20th century wealthy developed places where people die in hospitals or nursing 
nursing homes out of sight and it's not in, in people's lives, in, in children's lives in the same way. Don also lived in a cultural moment where, as he puts it, cancer was a word that was <coughs> coughed into the hand. So coming from these slightly uptight, waspy backgrounds, how do you tell the kids? Yeah, that, but that generation, his parents' generation, had lived through so much death. Two world wars, malnutrition, terrible poverty. There had been so much more death and death at a young age. So they were maybe more familiar with it at the same time and maybe that's behind the, the desire to repress confronting or presenting it to children. Yes, well, I, I guess Peter Pan is also around the same time as the First World War and there's just had been so much bloodshed that suddenly there became all of these sort of metaphors where the fall and there was stiff upper lip and you don't, you don't talk about this stuff. Part of the challenge you had with your sons is that they're both obviously very bright and kids always surprise you by, by how perceptive they are, I think, in any case. How long into the crisis was it before you thought you could tell your eldest son about what was going on with Don? Well, it was too long, I think, in retrospect, um, because I th that sort of knowledge does change the dynamic in the house and secrets sort of grow and become their own monsters, changing the atmosphere. We didn't tell our kids until actually we were sort of had got to safer land because we, we knew that Don was going to be able to have chemotherapy, they, another mutation was found in his blood where this would be possible. And, um, so the mutation just kept getting more exotic, did it? Yes. His, the oncologist was, was just like, you are just really freaking weird. And uh, you're, his, 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 he was a, it had to be special. <laughs> so, so the prognosis had improved by the time his, you saw his, his, uh, The prognosis had improved and that meant that we could tell a story that was potentially more hopeful. But it's recommended that you do not promise your children that you will live. No one really likes being in the middle of the story, not knowing the ending. But, but that's, that's where we were and obviously lots of families are living with that sort of uncertainty. Aside from the bare fact of the matter, what did you want them to know when you were telling them this? Well, I wanted them to know that there would always be someone that would be looking after them, even if, even if their dad was, to, was too sick to do it or I was with their dad and unable to. I wanted them to know that nothing they had done had caused the cancer. Because yeah, no, This is really interesting <laughs> to me. Like, who in a million years would ever think a kid would think that? But they do sometimes. They do. There's a, there's a, you know, kids are magical thinkers who, who believe at uh, six and three or then seven and four, as our kids were, that um, they've created the circumstances around them. I was following expert guidance here. I wasn't so intuitive to, to realise this myself. So you read a book that said you should let the kids know that it's not their fault. Yes, that's yes, that's a that is a common feeling that kids have. You say that once you told the secret, the fact that it was in the world out in the world now had redrawn the walls of your house, which is a lovely phrase. What had changed in the house? Well, I suppose it was an end to the sort of sotto, uh, you know, uh, here I go again, my, our sotto voce conversations <laughs> and we could start the business of talking about life. I mean, once you start talking to kids about death, you can actually also start talking about what's most precious about life and how we can, we can best live it. 
I think there was just a pressure in in, in hiding this, and and in, and it wasn't. Are well, things better then? Is that what you're saying? I just think that it it was a sort of unbearable tension, and it wasn't really fair to the kids because often when adults aren't frank with them, they can imagine something's worse. I mean, it's not as if they couldn't tell that their dad was going, you know, having to sort of lie down for long stretches of the day and even after dinner. I mean, it, it was it was comic that we didn't think they would know what was going on. Not long ago, I spoke to Kate Forsyth. I've had her on my program many times. Kate's an author of, a fiction author, and she often bases her work on folk tales, fairy tales from all over the world. She's even got a PhD in such things. And she understands these things, I think, better than anyone I've ever met. And her most recent book is about the Minotaur, Minotaur, Minotaur. And it led her to think a lot about monsters, about what monsters are. And the thinking is that monsters are there to embody free-floating fears and anxieties that don't really have any shape. So when you you create a monster that embodies those fears and then that's something that can be killed. How was monster thinking coming into your thinking at the time, Chloe? Well, I I suppose uh, the monster was the leukaemia and it felt that this force was breathing down our neck. Monsters are really interesting in children's literature partly because the sort of so-called golden age of of Anglo-American children's literature also sort of correlates with colonial times and and in particularly in the UK the idea of the golden age of empire and so monsters are often racialized in these in these books and I mean even in Australian children's stories in May Gibbs the the Banksia men are these racist caricatures so monsters are psychologically important to storytelling but also I, I think Kate's right to embodying anxiety and fear but in so many classics such as Tolkien or, or C.S. Lewis, the monsters have dark skin and, and, and actually we don't really want our kids travelling to those lands anymore. You mentioned one of the rules of fairy tales, which is never go off the path. That's important. Yes. Another one is know the name of the thing you're addressing. Knowing the name gives you power. Yes, that's right. And, I mean, there are so many stories of of heroes who managed to tame the monster or or freeze the monster by finding the monster's correct name. And I guess as a, as a writer, that's what you're always sort of trying to do is to put something frightening or, or frightful into a, a kind of cage and maybe the only way you can pin it down is, is to describe it accurately. At one point when Don was going through chemotherapy because it turned out this mutation on the mutation meant that chemotherapy could address it in the end, which left him terribly weak, of course, and nauseous and everything else. While all this was going on, you write that there was a nest of white-plumed honey eaters, these beautiful birds that appeared, native birds that appeared on the back veranda of your house. Tell me why this little nest of little hatchlings became so important to you all. Well, I realised... To Don, it, it felt like uh, an avian delegation had arrived to, to give him a blessing in, in his time of strife. And he was very ill, but he took to defending this nest really passionately. If the kids happened to be 
kicking a ball nearby or, um, you know, one of the kids was sort of out there with a plastic hammer at four pretending to fix the deck and he had to sort of move away and um, tracking how the birds was going was very important. So when actually one day a currawong appeared in the garden, sort of the, the nestlings were fattened up and just perfect for a meal, you know, we, we sort of started a vigil to make sure that nothing happened to these birds and it did become, it did feel like if if the birds will be all right, you know, maybe, you know, you do start to think magically. And I realised that we'd sort of entered into a children's book ourselves. This was a sort of story about a family watching the birds. There was one day when it looked as though the birds were gone and I felt so stupid as though I had thought that you know what the hell do I really think that this is the secret garden or something and that if I follow this storyline where I happen to be the one who who takes the thorn from the lion's paw that the lion will defend me forever we've got these stories of a human doing some sort of mild thing for an animal and then the animal is sort of loyal to them forever and that if we looked after the birds the birds were going to look after us and uh you know I'd I'd fallen for that old storyline of of human beneficence so if you see this drama as its own st- sort of story you have the setup, which is this couple who are both atheists and they're going through this awful ordeal. Well, I'm not actually an atheist. Okay, he he, he is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm agnostic. You're agnostic. Okay, well, agnostic and atheist. Neither of you is absolutely certain there's an afterlife. Let's put it in those terms. Then there's a plot twist when the son comes home with a book on Egyptian mummies and you've got to explain what that is and then the temptations of saying that some people believe in an afterlife. That's right. Um, yes, our old elder son um, sort of took his reader out of his school bag and started to read in, in graphic detail about how, you know, the different organs are, are put in jars when he was reading to his poor father who was sick with um, chemo. And you did the whole thing about it, and you've got to suck the brains out of the nose with a straw, like they've got to, they've got to suck it right out. I do remember it was yeah. very graphic, and then Don just had to sort of wordlessly get up, and I had to, to, to sit down, and, and there was this sort of page open of a, of a mummified figure, and... And uh, it wasn't, you know, uplifting reading when you're really ill. But no, this question of, of what, what happens next, I, I think that it's really important for adults who are going through this to work out what they believe because, and even if the answer is I don't know, because children children are going to ask. So it does make me think, though, you know, we're, we're, we're wired for stories and any story about what happens next is, is just a fantastic form of storytelling that might have survived for millennia, but, you know, no, no one really knows what happened. So I, I, did, I, I, I gave him some of the sort of religion's greatest hits of what, what can happen, happen next. But he, he read about the ancient Egyptians believing that their dogs will be uh, the first thing they see in the afterlife. And he liked that idea. So that's been popular in our house. I think one of my, my favourite lines in your book is this one. And now that, I, now that you've said that, I think it's a, it kind of points to your agnosticism, I think, which is when you wrote, the dark feels alive, so who can tell what else might be? So that's you standing inside or just outside the world of magical thinking? Well, I think 
it's it's interesting um, the idea of of an afterlife and uh, and a soul because in all storytelling we want some moment of transcendence, don't we? We want a magical transformation to happen to us as as listeners or, or readers, and we want this to happen to the person on a voyage in our story, be it on a on a on a broomstick or a magic boat, to to be all right. And I think that we we want to know that our we would love to believe that our souls will also transcend and 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 live on. You think we have souls? I think that um, the. <laughs> Well, the soul is a kind of happy ending that we 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 give each other. I think personally, um, just went to the general we, and I'm wanting to get the more specific you on this. Chloe. Do I believe in the soul? I I think the soul. Well, I'm not sure. I I don't know. We have a. It's again. It's a happy ending, isn't it? I mean, I've groped around in the dark trying to tell my kids something that will make dying feel easier, and um, certainly. The soul is is a is a nice out, um, but historically souls were only given to to people, not animals. So it becomes a story of of human transcendence, and the environment often doesn't fare as well in in these stories of of human triumph. So then came the day when Don had a bone marrow tissue extraction, which meant that had to a biopsy was done on that, and then finally, you were to go in to meet with the oncologist to find out how well or sick he was. Tell me about that day and what that day was like for you because this is, this is a day that I'm, I'm sure some people have had here themselves or might, the outcome might have been different but it's, Absolutely. it's that worst day in a way. In some it way. is and I think that as lots of people will recognise, time is suddenly dictated by, you know, how long until the appointment, you know, it's next week, it's, it's, it's tomorrow, it's in three hours. And it was perhaps 10, 10 days before Christmas and I thought the, the news was going to, to not be good. And um, we turned up and they couldn't find Don's results and finally... The oncologist rang through to the lab and I could hear on the phone that the news wasn't good. Like what was being said on the phone? What were you hearing? It was just, I was hearing, oh no, don't tell me it's, you know, some sort of blood cancer that I didn't understand. And then they realised they'd got his name wrong. <laughs> and it was a different guy altogether. Yeah. But there was no cancer left in Don's blood and... We walked out of the office being given this gift with, with Don actually feeling almost embarrassed by his good fortune while we, we passed through the waiting room of people whose stories might not got be um, going to, who, who might not have been about to have such a, a good Christmas. What a strange moment, Chloe. I mean, you'd suffered greatly, all of you. And you were so entitled to your joy, but you couldn't have had it just that moment, could you? Just not then. You, would have, you couldn't have shown it or, and, until you were well out of that, that office. It's a, it's a, I mean, I think it's a shock when you, when you get the good news because um, you realise how you've stopped thinking about the future and you suddenly allow yourself to think, you know, slightly past the day and also to sort of start to breathe again. But 
you know, it, uh, stories are are really interesting, aren't they? Because it depends where you where you put the curtain down, and I think you can make any any story happy with just um, where where into, depending on where you end it. And uh, but we all live with a Damocles sword hanging over us. It's just how how much we want to think about that day to day. There's a kind of a just very brief passing mention to the Icelandic sagas in your book and their stories about real people, people we know actually existed, they're on birth registers in Iceland, they're extraordinary stories. They're not for children but I'm pretty sure children would have been told those stories. Almost none of them have happy endings and one of the most powerful of them is a, is a story called, uh, it's a saga called Eitlis Saga and he's this terrible man, he's this awful Viking, he's a really horrible man. He's mean, he's a thief, he's just a, just a really nasty son of a bitch, he really is. And he retires from being a Viking, goes to his farm on the west coast of Iceland, and he's got his kids there, and his little boy goes out too far and drowns in the inlet. And something about that boy and his death just breaks him, just breaks him completely. And he goes up into a room, into the house, and just sits there and waits to die. But he has a clever daughter who goes up to sit with him, and she beguiles him into writing a poem because he's a great poet, to write a poem for the son so he'll be remembered. And, it, and the words are painful and they don't come to him quickly, but then they do. And then when he's made it in his head and speaks it, she says, you've got to come down and tell that to the family. And he does. And as he does so, he sort of sings himself, mm. sings himself not out of the grief but back into the world. Mm. Is this what you've been trying to do? Well, I think storytelling is about survival and in the Icelandic story it's about the telling of the story, the singing of the song, the writing of the poem. That might be what survives. We tell stories of, of heroes who survive, you know, in the story the hero survives some a witch or a monster and so does the story survive. You know, I've I've written a book that... I hope is full of of wonder and joy and and beauty, as much as the the darker elements of it. That that one day our sons will perhaps take off the shelf and and find gives them a gives them a a, a shot of these of these feelings. Is this a book also about your own mortality? I mean, it's a hard thing to admit, but I, I mean, I write my own books. One of the reasons why I do is so that my children, when they get older, will understand me better. You won't be around forever. Is this a way of explaining yourself to your children after you've gone? It probably is. Uh, I think I think that one way that we do commune with the with the dead, one way that we can have uh, access to a, a, a kind of heavenly afterlife if you like words, is by reading the work of... Just speaking generally again, <laughs> Chloe, I mean you. I'm talking about you here. You want yourself to be... You, Chloe Hooper, to be remembered, don't you, to, by your children after you've gone? Well, I, I, I do hope that they remember me. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I've, I've put that. a lot of effort into these yeah, I know, kids. but they've, they've got their own kitty pictures of you. But hearing you talk to your reader as an, as an adult... Well, I think actually, uh, Richard... The book is about about me, but there's a lot of, that's about their father, and so it's also a record of some of the things that are most important to him. That I mean, they they'll be able to access his writing. That they're they're fortunate like that, and and find out some of the things that meant the most to him. But it's also their um, 
it'll be there for them in this book too. It's a book that's amazing, it's incredibly moving and it's full of wonder. Thank you for that and thank you for being here today and answering my impertinent questions, Chloe. Thank you so much. Chloe Hooper, ladies and gentlemen. Chloe Hooper's book is called Bedtime Story. That was recorded at the Canberra Writers' Festival. Big thanks to Jean Rickmans and the team at the Writers' Festival and to Mark Jennings from ABC Canberra. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.